it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. Welcome to the Investing for Beginners podcast. I'm your host for today, Andrew Sather. We have a special guest with us today. His name is Eric Balchunas. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. You're in the 20 percentile. All right. It took me <laughs> 20 percentile. Yeah. Took me second second effort. So Eric is the senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he's got a really cool book called The Bogle Effect. If investors aren't aware of who John Bogle is, he is definitely a legend. And I was not aware how much he impacted the financial world until reading this book. And there was a lot of really cool things in the book. So Eric, thanks for taking time out of your day and joining us today. Yeah, that's music to my ears because people do know who he is or at least know his name. And I wanted to make sure I introduced some new information and went deeper and wider than you know, past temps at talking about Vanguard. I think you certainly did. Before we get into all of that, because your role as senior ETF analyst ties all in with Jack Bogle and everything, but in case we have somebody who's tuning in to our podcast for the very first time, maybe they're an absolute beginner. There was a word, a particular word in there in the book that was mentioned many, many times. It was fiduciary. So can you break down what that word means, fiduciary, why it's important for investors to know? It simply put, it just means putting the client's interest ahead of yours. So that's what a lot of advisors today now are, quote, fiduciary advisors. That means they try to pick the funds that could do the best for the client. This is a shift from past decades where brokers would put people in funds because the fund paid them. And that is called suitability, which is a lot less of a stringent criteria. Like, is that fund suitable for that client? It's almost like a loophole to put them in stuff that just gives you a kickback, to be honest. That system is something Bogle had a heavy hand in disrupting. So now fiduciary is putting your client's interest first. Bogle and Vanguard use that word a lot because they have a structure that lowers fees all the time and they consider themselves to be strong fiduciaries. So that's really all it means. You would think everybody in the industry was a fiduciary, but not. And that's, you know, this is why there's a lot of stories come out of Wall Street are not positive. They usually end badly, people getting screwed over, rises and falls. It's a wild industry, but 
Due to the Bogle effect, I think it's more and more becoming a very fiduciary industry. But that's generally what that means in a nutshell, is putting the client's interest first. Amazing how common sense that sounds. And <laughs> I know I always tell people, you think that would be like the way it was for a hundred years, but it's now it's like a new thing. Yeah. I think if you want like a, a breakdown of what the opposite of a fiduciary is, you should read Michael Lewis's book, Liars Poker. There's some great examples yeah. of working against. Yeah, clients. totally. I mean, I think if you're on Wall Street and your client is an institution and they're just like, look, go out and just trade and make me money and I'll give you 2%. That's fine. I mean, that's where a lot of hedge funds operate and whatnot. I think for the broad mass of people, though, back in the day when they used the broker, there was just a lot of money being put in funds that the broker wouldn't invest in themselves. Whereas when you become a fiduciary advisor, you really start to think about, well, what fund would be best for my client? And that mental shift, that incentive shift is a huge reason for the rise of index funds and ETFs. Because now the advisors who always knew that was the better move, but now they're more incentivized to do it. And that has become a huge driver. And it's interesting that in the US now, I'd say that I think it's around 70% of the assets are now managed by fiduciary asset-based fee advisors. But that's that number has slowly grown over the years. So 70% is probably going to keep growing. But overseas, it's almost nothing. And that's why the Bogle effect and indexing and all this has has barely begun to crack through in other countries because they're still run that way where a broker puts the client in a fund because the fund gave them a payment. And by the way, the payment comes from the investor's money, which is like, it's basically like, I'm going to take money from you to put you in this fund that I know isn't that good. And that is essentially a big part of what Bogle and Vanguard disrupted. Yeah. So can you describe maybe the basics of active versus passive? Again, if somebody's a beginner, they don't really know what we're talking about in that sense, because Bogle definitely played arguably the biggest role in this wide adoption of passive investing. Yeah. I mean, simply put, if you think about the S&P 500 or the Russell 1000, these are indexes and an index just tracks a group of stocks and it's weighted by the size of the stock. And that thing is sort of what we call market beta. It's just generally the market and that's passive. So if you invest in a fund that holds the S&P 500 stocks, which are weighted by market cap, so Apple, Amazon are near the top. And then a company like, I don't know, something like um, Urban Outfitters would be near the bottom. They might not be in the S&P, so don't quote me on that. But you know what I mean? A smaller company would be towards the bottom. That's what passive is, is just buying the market. And what, what Bogle really, I think one of the big things he did is he now allows you to buy the market at no cost. So back in the day, there, there was no such thing as a cheap index fund. They had index funds. And when he introduced it, it was, I think, 45 basis points or 0.45% at first. And, you know, some people took it, but over the years, Vanguard lowered the fee. And so the reason there's a huge boom in passive investing really is because it's cheap. So owning the S&P 500 at 0.03% of an annual fee is a very compelling value proposition. The other thing is over the years, it's just been proven that an active fund, which basically tries to beat the S&P by picking stocks and deviating from the benchmark has largely underperformed. And if you go any given year, only about a third can outperform. But as you go along bigger time frames, like 10 years, 20 years, it whittles down to 10, 5%. And so a lot of investors are like, well, am I going to pay 80 basis points or, or 100 basis points a year for a 20 or 10% chance at outperforming? Or should I just lock in the market return for no cost? And almost everybody is picking the latter decision. 
But again, the no cost is where the Vogel effect really comes in because Vanguard structure is owned by the investors. So over the years, whenever they've gotten assets, the board, which is the investors, people who are elected by the investors, vote to lower the fees. So the fee of Vanguard's funds has gone from 40, 50 bips in 1975, 76, down to three or four for both stocks and bonds. And so this is massive and it's caused a gigantic sea change. So really, I think passive is about just tracking an index, but for almost no cost. That's really what passive is. Active is thinking and trying to beat that index by picking stocks or bonds uh, in a way that you think are, you know, can outperform, but it's hard. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. There's lots of flavors of it, too, for sure. Lots of flavors, yeah. So how do you believe Jack Bogle? I thought that was interesting how you talked about some of the more personal things that happened to him. So he had a heart attack that you highlighted in the book, as well as dedication to his faith. So how do you think that shaped his journey in creating Vanguard? And maybe touch on like the ownership structure again, because sure. we see a lot of DeFi and, and a lot of this focus on ownership of 
cryptos and everything. He kind of pioneered that already. It's kind of already a concept. Absolutely. I In the book, I say Vogel is really the OG of DeFi. It's not technically decentralized finance, but it's a good, pure, similar thing. Because Bogle just removed a lot of your money from other people's pockets. And when you invest in a cheap index fund, you basically get to keep every cent. And that's in the spirit of DeFi, in my opinion. Now, the Vanguard Mutual Ownership Structure is major. And this is why I wrote the book, because I felt index funds got too much credit for the index fund revolution. They're only popular because they're cheap. And they're only cheap because Bogle started a company where the funds own the company and the investors own the funds. Ipso facto, there's only... The shareholders are the investors. And so, like I said, every time they get extra money, imagine if you were in a co-op and you have extra money, of course, you're going to vote for your own self-interest. So the own self-interest of Vanguard's owners is to lower fees in the funds they are in, right? It's a beautiful thing, right? There are mutual ownership structures in the insurance industry. That's a little more common there, but not in asset management. It makes no sense. And there's really no economic incentive to set up a company like this. Nobody goes to Wall Street to turn over all the future profits to the investors that just, you know, it's almost anti-capitalistic. The reason Bogle did it, he was a different kind of guy, but there was this really weird circumstance in the way he had a falling out with his partners in the 60s. You read the book, you'll know what I'm talking about. So there was a circumstance that happened mixed with Bogle's just general, you know, abnormal mindset and populist attitude. And I think he was a natural fiduciary kind of guy. So he set up Vanguard as, as mutually owned, and then for the next 45 years, he pioneered the idea of low costs and the cost went down and down and down. And the index fund was really a nice match made in heaven for that structure. Index funds were not invented by Bogle, but he definitely championed them. And the makeup of Bogle, I think you're right, because I interviewed 50 people and I asked them all the same question. Why has nobody copied Vanguard structure? And everybody said, because there's no economic incentive to do that. Well, then I said, well, then why did Bogle do it? And they all said the same thing. That's a good question. So chapter four is called Explaining Bogle, where I try to break down what went into somebody who would do this. Again, created an $8 trillion company and he, you know, in assets, and he only ended up with a net worth of $80 million, which is a good amount for most people, but it wouldn't even put him in the top 1,000 richest people on Wall Street. And so that is interesting to study. And I got, came up with a couple things. First, he grew up in the Great Depression. He was just one of those World War II types like my grandmother who like saved everything and just didn't like to spend money, turned the lights off anytime they weren't in a room, that kind of mindset. He also was had a huge experience in the 60s of, of thinking you should like go and ride the growth wave, but then the, the whole market crashed. And a- after that, he swore he would never take the bait again in a market cycle. And that, that's important, I think, because he just kept to this one strategy for 40 years. It's not easy. In, in markets, sometimes you get carried away. And you're like, oh, this is different now. And it never really is different. It's just these cycles. But he was able to stay the course through many cycles because of what he saw in the 60s. And I think his heart was another big one. He, had a, he, was, not, he was told he wasn't going to live till past 35. He had a bad heart. So he went to the hospital constantly. When he played racquetball, he would have to bring a defibrillator with him. I think I butchered the pronunciation of that, but one of those things that uh, gets your heart going again. And that's how near death he was his whole life. He even had a heart transplant later in life. So I think that gave him a jolt of life and purpose, knowing that death was nearby. And I do think he was a, wasn't a religious fanatic at all, but he loved the Bible. He loved the stories of underdogs. And he always felt that if you do the right thing, you know, God will get your back and, you know, give you help. And, and the Bible is the most quoted book in all of his books. That's why I put that in there. So 
he also loved to read old poetry, history, and I think he saw himself as a sort of populist hero in his own story. And then, you know, I think he was a guy who just didn't have a need for money, which is an odd pursuit. Most people go to Wall Street because they love money. He just didn't, he didn't have that gene. He did like the praise. He liked adulation and praise. And so being like the St. Jack and the guy doing good for investors really suited his internal need for, for that praise. So uh, like I said, he wasn't perfect. Everybody has different needs and things that drive them. I just feel like he was almost miscast in this industry. And I, you know, I try to explain that in a way because, again, nobody's done this since. And it's just such an odd situation that to have this company that is owned by the investors. And so it was, uh, you know, interesting answering that question. But I feel like I got as deep as I could with it. And I think people can learn from from this guy. I think there's a lot of elements of him that speak to investors and young people today who are looking to make money, but also do good for the world. I think he was way ahead of that, you know, because he, he did this during the Wall Street greed is good stuff. He did it during the big short in the 90s. I mean, he, he did it before it was kind of in vogue. Now I think it's a little more in vogue to have this sort of conscious business attitude. So I give him a lot of credit for being way ahead of that curve. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. And if there's maybe one other thing that stand, stood out to me, I'm going to butcher the statistic you put in there. It was something like 80% of the fund or the growth of the funds that he created wasn't for decades later. And so for a long time period, he was kind of pioneering his own trail not really getting a lot of that credit and not getting today it's it's you know vanguard's a huge behemoth it's a colossus like you said he didn't have that he didn't know that was going to be that way but he had the patience and the discipline to stick through his approach whether it looked in vogue or not yeah that's a great point you bring up and i stress that in the book listen to this stat so the vanguard has 8.3 trillion today 97 percent of those assets came after he stepped down as ceo wow apple I think 83% of their market cap is after Steve Jobs. So there is a pattern of people who are pioneers doesn't catch hold right away. They got to build this big foundation. And so, yeah, the patience, you know, was incredible. The other thing that made it take a long time, two things. One is he operated outside of that broker system I explained. At the time, the only way to sell a fund was to give broker money. He wouldn't do it. He had to get people to leave the whole system, which is not easy. You just have to leave their job and go out on their own. And that's scary. And But created a product so enticing that many brokers reformed themselves and became advisors, fiduciary, because they wanted to buy Vanguard funds. So he, he changed. That, that takes a while. The other thing is an index fund doesn't make intuitive sense. It does now, maybe today more so, but back in the day, it seemed like average. And you know, in America, we like winners. And he had to really try to present all these other arguments for why it wasn't average and over time why you actually won. So that all that took a lot of time. And then but once the world turned and they kind of got it all, the fiduciary movement had started, it bam. I mean it was like an explosion. And obviously the assets went straight up like a hockey stick and continue to grow. They they have grown by a trillion dollars in the past three years. Each year. Like a trillion a year. <laughs> it's crazy. And they take in one billion a day. It's it's just it that's another reason I think we take it for granted, but those numbers are astonishing, but he saw barely any of it. In fact, in his, he has a book where he has all his speeches from the 80s and 90s, 
And every Christmas party, his speech would be like, oh, we've got one extra billion this year. We went from 7 billion to 8 billion. And he was so happy about that. Now they've taken a billion a day. That's crazy. <laughs> that's, not, that's, that's definitely not pocket change. Yeah. So Eric, I wanted to ask you this because knowing you're, you have a podcast about ETFs called Trillions, correct? Yes. So you're definitely way more of an ETF specialist than I am. Bogle's definitely changed the world and made it. He saved people trillions of dollars, right? Billions or trillions of dollars. There was a quote in the book that you did that you actually quoted his book. He said, in short, our prototypical client is a financially astute investor who knows what he or she wants, when he or she wants it, and how to get it. So my question for you, this one's kind of tough, but how do you keep investors who maybe don't know what they want and they don't know how to get it, how do we get them to learn about some of the fundamentals of buy and hold, don't freak out when the market's crashing, when the lessons of an of a index are not the most exciting topic, to say the least? So how do you get people excited about it enough to learn the fundamentals so that they follow, they internalize and they follow it when the market goes down? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And you're right. Every time there's a sell-off, Vanguard is the only company that takes inflows even though the market's falling. So clearly, the type of person who is their core investor has figured this out. For other people, I think there's two charts that make me think of this. One is a chart where he shows the growth of $10,000. It gets 7% a year versus 5%. It's only 2% difference. It seems like no biggie. But over 50 years, the 7% gets you $300,000. The 5% gets you like $140,000. So the idea of going into an index fund and holding it really starts the gap and the compounding kicks in without the costs. And it's beautiful. So I would look at long-term charts that are by dollar. I think that really says a lot. The other thing is that it's human. I found, I figured it out. Yeah, it was only gone for a second. I'm actually impressed. I grabbed it back from the cosmos. The other thing that he talked about that I think was, was really useful was where stock market returns come from. You have people who get up and work every day and they create value in corporations that value is then put into cash flow, which gets transferred to you in dividends and earnings growth. That's called investment return. That investment return has been really consistent over a hundred years. Every decade, there's positive investment return. What happens is the third, the other type of return is speculative return, which is just people bidding up stocks beyond what they're worth, and then it crashes down. So he has this chart of the investment returns of the each decade, the last hundred years. And it's all very consistent and positive. Then he overlays the actual return, which includes the speculation, and it's all over the map. So what he was trying to say was, don't get carried, don't look at the speculative return. Just keep your eye on the prize, which is the investment return. That's what you're here for. And that's consistent. So you have to see through the fog and the distraction of that speculative return, which goes up and down, and it can be enticing and seductive and then painful. That was powerful, I thought, because people can kind of understand that. Uh, you know, and it also, you can tell people don't ever trade, but I think it's easier to not do that if you understand why you shouldn't. And I think that those are two big things. So the growth of $10,000 and the speculative return versus investment return, I think were powerful ways. And I have a lot of that in the book because I didn't write a how-to book. I, I didn't want to do that. My old, my ETF book I wrote in 2016 was a little more how-to-ish, but I thought you would probably pick up on this because the way he explain this over 40 years 
it's true today still. And so you're going to pick up how to just from reading this, but I didn't like beat it over the head, but, and let's face it, trading is legal. You can do it. Some people have fun with it. What we've seen a lot is portfolios go to something like 80% cheap index funds, right? To get all the stocks and bonds covered. And then with the other 20%, they do a lot of speculative stuff with crypto and theme ETF, stuff like that. That seems to be the modern portfolio where you can sort of have your cake and eat it too. And I think also the 10, 20% can sometimes keep you, keep an itch scratched. So you don't mess with the 80%, which does create wealth most efficiently if you don't touch it and you let it compound. So I'm going to hold on to this one last question on this, and then we'll move on to something more interesting. You know, Dave, my co-host Dave talks a lot about how sometimes the financial literacy across our country here even is not the greatest. He gives an example of being in the banking industry and people coming in and saying, what do you mean? I don't have money in my account. You know, I have checks. So how do beginner investors, average investors, how do they really internalize that message? Because I get it. I, I certainly get it. But I also spent a lot of time, you know, is it reading books like yours, reading books like Bogles? Is it listening to podcasts like yours? Like, how do we get people from, instead of learning these lessons the hard way, getting burned because they don't, you know, they panic sell, how do we get them from that to learning these lessons how would you recommend somebody do that today? How would you recommend, you know, the next generation? Well, you know, the stuff that goes up, like if you have all your money in crypto, I, I it's tough to say anything will, like some people are all in on this stuff. And, you know, I think I would just recommend, you know, I don't, I don't give investment advice. That's more for an advisor, but just cover the whole market with two, you know, two low cost ETFs, like the total market equity, total market bond, and just get that covered because you don't want to miss out on anything. You do that, you'll never have FOMO for stocks or bonds. And those are also so diversified, they're never going to go down that much. Even in 2008, I think the S&P was down 35%. That's a lot. But if you stretch out 10 years, it wasn't that bad. It still generally goes up. So you have to just think about that because I mean, what other option do you have? You could you know, speculate on something that could lose all your money. I think putting it into the markets, you get, again, the return that corporations produce by creating value. And that's really, you're just writing capitalism's coattails with stocks and bonds. And so get that. And then for the other stuff, again, that might be just more you're are interested in. Like maybe you think semiconductors are just such a great thing. They add a little semis on top, you know, something like that. I don't think there's any harm in that. I think to your point though, half the country doesn't own stocks or bonds, which I talk about in the book because even Vogel feared that the people who owned stocks, that they were leaving the other part of the country behind and that would present a problem. And I think we're seeing that's creating the wealth gap. So I kind of end the book looking at some people who might be able to try to bring the rest of the country into it. And there's a couple ideas. One is to have somebody have to pass a financial literacy test. And then when they're 18, they can actually unlock an account that has been holding index funds for since they were 18. Sort of like a pre- funded account, but you could only unlock it like a driver's license if you pass all these tests. I think that would go a long way rather than having the stupid stock picking class test uh, contest they do in school. I think this other method, I think people have to sort of shift how they think about it and look at it that way, but also have to, people have to do what they want to do, you know, like, and it's okay to learn the hard way. Like I was a 20 something in the nineties and uh, you know, me and my roommates, we got carried away with like Oracle and Microsoft. We start these stocks are going to go up forever and uh, they would go up like, you know, a couple percent a day. <laughs> it was fun. And we thought we yeah. had extra money and then everything, obviously the internet bubble burst. And that taught us, yeah, maybe we should just like 
buy a fund and just not try this. And also you get your responsibilities in life and you don't maybe have time to dabble, do day trading. So I think a lot of people just learn the hard way, which is fine. Experience is a great teacher. And, you know, they get older, they have more reasons to not put too much speculation in their portfolio. So that does end up driving them to things like index funds naturally. So, but yeah, I would, I think my book has a lot in there, but he wrote a book. I review all his book. He wrote 12 books. Guy was really on a mission. His book, The Little Book of Common Sense to me is awesome. It's short, sweet. And if you read that, it's like a nice shot of just pure truth. And it's like eating like spinach for investment advice. Do you know what I mean? It's like green vegetables. Read that book. And I think you're, I mean, you know, that's really good stuff in there. But some people aren't interested in that. They want to actually gamble. And there's other books for that. And I'm not, I'm trying to judge them. But if if really building wealth is your goal, I would just read that book. In mine. Yeah. (laughs) That's good advice. The other good chapter in there called Some Worry. So can you give us some of the biggest misconceptions about passive indexing and maybe one that grinds your gears the most? Maybe we could start there. Yeah, there's a bunch like, oh, it's uh, creating a stock market bubble. I'm like, well, passive has taken in $2 trillion in the past 10 years. The stock market has grown by $43 trillion. So it's still only, passive funds, ETFs and index funds still only own about 16, 17% of the stock market. They are growing, but they're still, they're not enough to move stocks around. Anybody who's watched financial news over the past year knows that stocks are moving plenty on earnings. Like earnings comes out, stock goes up or down. Active is, is definitely in control and that's good. That's a weird one and easy to diffuse. The one that I always found so silly is that passive investors are weak hands. Like they're all going to run for the hills when it gets bad. Actually, every sell-off shows the opposite. They're much stronger because I think they're resigned to the fact that a three basis point index fund is the best thing they can get their hands on. So what am I going to do? Jump to some fund that might've had a good year or like, but just like, nah, this is the best I can do. I'll just hang in there. And so they become, they're the most disciplined investor. If anything, they're going to help put a floor on a sell-off because they're going to keep investing. And so that's one that grinds my gears a lot. The one that has merit that I talk about in the book, you know, customer service. I think the cheaper everything gets, you don't have a ton of money to build out customer service. And I think uh, Vanguard in particular has to look at that and consider that because they have 27% of the assets, but only take home 5% of the revenue. That's why people like them. But that 5% of the revenue is, there's not a ton of money to do customer service with. So I think that's an issue that's legitimate. Another one that we like to watch is the ownership. The more BlackRock and Vanguard get big, the more voting power they have. So they're each going to own 7, 8% of shares. That not, those numbers could double in the next 10 years. They could own 15% of each stock. It gives them a lot of power. And the question is, how do they deal with that? Do they, do they democratize that by letting everybody who's in their funds fill out a poll or elect to put their vote as a percentage of the total vote? I think they should consider those kind of things rather than having this small group that, you know, is in New York City, comprised of a couple people doing all of that voting. I think they really have to think about how to open that up because there's a lot of power to, to walk around with. It certainly is a lot of power. And it's one of those things I worry about too. Like democratization is a good idea, but if the people who are getting into passive index funds are doing it so they don't have to know what's going on with these businesses, do we really want them voting on the businesses? The question I have for you on that. Yeah, that's, um, that, that's actually a good, something that the Janus CEO brought up once. So index funds just shouldn't vote. I actually don't think it's a bad idea. I don't think people in the next funds really care that much. On the flip side, 
the way to solve that is simply have a poll. And if you're interested in this, just fill out the poll and then take all the results. And that way you have a feeling of the consciousness of the investors who do care and then vote accordingly. That would be my pretty easy solution. But anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to I'm asking because I have no idea what the answer to this is, but who does the vote at the end of the day? Like who picks, is it somebody in Vanguard who's voting yes. the shares? Yeah, it's called the corporate governance. Person? Yeah, the CEO Vanguard does. It's called the corporate governance group. But obviously they're under the CEO, but there's a, they're a group made up of people who look through all these proxies and figure out what issues they want to vote with management on and against. And we have a, I have a colleague who I quote in the book, Rob DeBoff, who follows all these proxies. He likes passive ownership. He thinks they're, he's a fan of ESG. He thinks they vote more ESG-ish than the active people who are just after profit. I think it's cool to have both. I think, you know, you have a little ESG voting over here with the passives and then the profit hungry act is voting too. That's a decent mix. I'm okay with that. I think it's, there will be a couple votes where, you know, if BlackRock and Vanguard both kind of get together or they can really completely move the needle. They do put out reports on how they voted so people can follow up, but they, they go with management a lot. There's a couple issues they definitely vote against. They voted against the Google CEO's pay package, uh, which would have delighted Vogel. He was thought CEOs got paid too much, but I don't think they're as tough on management and CEOs as some people want them to be. On the flip side, there's a whole group of people who think they should get out of voting ESG style because not all their investors live say in like left or blue states you know they got investors in texas and florida and stuff so like i said it's complicated i appreciate that balance perspective because it's probably somewhere in the middle and it's there's always people screaming at the extremes they have they're always going to have a target on their back going forward now and anytime a company has a problem it's going to be like well vanguard's the biggest donor or blackrock's the biggest donor and now they're in the papers i asked head of iShares that and a guy who used to be the CIO of Vanguard. And they both had the same answer, which is, look, we signed up for this. We're okay. You know, when you're the big dog, you're going to get attacked. And we understand this. We accept that responsibility. And that was sort of their answer to that. So they weren't like complaining or anything, uh, but I'm sure it is annoying sometimes when they get called out in an article, like, or some study that says Vanguard is the dirtiest company or something. But well, if you have an index fund business, you have to hold Exxon. That's what your investors signed up for. It's just the way it is. So this will complete, I mean, also these companies offer ESG funds that purposely exclude some of those stocks. So I think the best thing is to give people choice to funds, which they do. So I tend to think it gets a little blame out of proportion sometimes in the media and they get blamed a little too much and they don't understand the concept of an index fund. But I go through a lot of this in the book uh, as are aware. Yeah, I, I saw a meme on Instagram. So obviously take that for what it's worth, but somebody was railing about who is this BlackRock and why did did you know they own every company? <laughs> yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. They're like, who did they like, they discovered, like they discovered this thing and oh my God, this company is so nefarious. It's a bunch of dudes in a back room with cigars. It's just so, it is funny to see how that plays out, but no, it's much more above board than that. I don't think people should worry too much. Yeah. I would agree with that. So maybe let's tie up our whole conversation today. If we could, Bring it back to this idea of compound interest, which I think Jack was very, very passionate about. Anything we didn't talk about with compound interest and how that applies to the average investor, how beginners can start to think about that and apply it for themselves. I think I would just really get into compounding. Compounding is a beautiful thing. When it starts to happen, the amount, isn't there this, um, there's this great, I didn't use it in the book, but there is this, I believe that if you take a domino, and you double the size of the domino, 
it only takes like 16 of them to knock over the, the Empire State Building. It's something like that. It's something, it's that, that's how ridiculous doubling every time get you go uh, quickly. And then each double gets higher. And I think, honestly, the Vanguard asset level that I just gave you, where they grow by a trillion a year, that's not all flows. That's also the market going up and growing. So I think their assets are a metaphor for how a portfolio can compound. But that it's, again, it's really something people should look at that I think will motivate people to, to not, you know, sell low and buy high because compounding, it's like playing a tree outside. You can't mess with it or it won't grow. You have to just let it grow. And that's a, a fair metaphor, but it's boring. And although some people in the book argue that they liked that it's boring because once they felt comfortable in a low cost index fund, and then they can just think about other things. And so they thought, oh, I got a good deal here. I'm not going to mess with it. And they actually like being freed up. Other people find that to be boring. And again, they, they like to scratch itches with speculation. And I would just take a small portion for that. Because again, you want that 80 core to compound. If you mess with it, it, it can't do that. I have a chapter at the end called The Art of Doing Nothing. And I really go into all this. And I say that there's a lot of forces trying you to do something, which is namely the media and commission-free trading and Robinhood and stuff. And again, it's legal, but you have to, in your own brain, by the way, I think emotionally you're wired to do something when things are bad. So this is part of what I explored in that last chapter, because you don't want to touch it, even if it seems like you should. And it's hard. Doing nothing when it comes to investing is actually a, a, an action. It's harder than it looks. That's why I explored it. But I think just the creation of a low-cost index fund really helps behavior. Because when it does get bad, you're like, well, what else am I going to go? I'll go all the cash and miss the next swing up go to an active fund that had a good year, but they might underperform next time. So I think the resignation that you're in a really good product is very helpful. So he actually, in my opinion, had a great benefit on behavior just by offering a, a product worth holding. The Domino's picture is a great one. I can already picture a meme that has a visualization of that. And so I think people can remember that. They should remember it when they talk about compound interest. I might steal that one when I talk about it in the future. Yeah, you should Google that. Google the Domino Empire State Building thing. And you should definitely share it with your audience. It's a mind-melting stat. Yeah, I believe it. So your book, The Bogle Effect, How John Bogle and Vanguard Turned Wall Street Inside Out and Saved Investors Trillions. Go check that out. It was a great overview of John Bogle's life, taken with varying perspectives that I don't think has been done on his life before. And there's also a lot of good nitty-gritty for all you other finance nerds out there. So Eric, thanks for joining us today. Where can people learn more about you and what you're doing online? I'm on Twitter a pretty good amount at Eric Balchunas. And I have a, the podcast you mentioned, Trillions, which you can get anywhere. So, and I do a t- half an hour TV show we call ETF IQ, which is uh, every Monday on Bloomberg TV at 1 p.m. Or just go and Google ETF IQ and see all the past episodes there. Those would be the free ways to get me. But if anybody has access to a Bloomberg terminal, that's where I put my research. But on Twitter, I release little sample sizes of that research and, I, and I'll engage with people and stuff. So that's probably the best way to start if you're interested to sort of follow some of the stuff that I'm doing. What's that again? At Eric Balchunas? Yeah, it's just my name. Believe it or not, it was available. <laughs> <laughs> it's the good news about having a name like mine. You pretty right. much can go on any social media and you never have to use like one, two or three after or whatever. So yeah, it's just my name and an app before it. So you'll take the mispronunciations for the trade-off you get a unique... Yeah, that's a good way. Yeah, I never thought of that. I think it's worth it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. That is going to wrap it up for today. Everybody, check out his book, 
go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a good one. We'll talk to you next time. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.